Welcome back to another episode of Speaking to Stacey, the podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacey Liddell, and today I had the opportunity to speak with a cognitive behavioral therapist. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. If you find this conversation entertaining or useful, please could I ask you to share the episode with one other person. You never know the positive impact this conversation could have on someone you care about. My guest today is Dr. Ryan Fuller, a clinical psychologist who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and techniques related to this field of psychology. Cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is a form of psychotherapy that has become increasingly popular over the years for its effectiveness in treating a wide range of mental health disorders. The three key benefits for the listeners this week are 1. How CBT can assist in a weight loss program. 2. You will learn how effective paced breathing can be as a relaxation technique. And 3. You will understand the connection between your environment, thoughts, feelings and behaviors. Please stick around until the end of the show if you want to hear why Dr. Fuller thinks most people could benefit from a meditation practice. So without further ado, I present to you Dr. Ryan Fuller. All right, welcome back to Speaking to Stacy. And this week we have something a bit different from moving away from, from sports people and personal trainers. I have Dr. Ryan Fuller with me today. And as is usual, Ryan, would you please introduce yourself and give the audience a little bit of a background into who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. Um, I'm Ryan Fuller. I'm an executive coach and clinical psychologist. Uh, I operate out of New York City. As an executive coach, you know, I work with uh, I work with some elite athletes, a lot of people in the world of hedge funds, C-suite entrepreneurs and startup founders that around the areas of performance and productivity and sort of overall life balance. Um, as a clinical psychologist, I've worked in two anger management labs and was the director of behavior for the weight loss program in the Obesity Research Center. So do a lot of weight loss work, areas around that, certainly anger. But the majority of my psychotherapy clients are really around anxiety and depression and just sort of overall trying to improve their satisfaction with life while reducing any kind of psychological symptoms. Uh, I'm also currently the director, um, actually the executive director of New York Behavioral Health, where we have you know, over 22 clinicians who are evidence-based practitioners. So they're using science to try to help people uh, improve their lives in a comfortable setting. Um, so that's that's the, what I'm currently doing. Um, my background is in uh, cognitive therapies and behavior therapies, specifically rational emotive behavior therapy. Um, I was fortunate enough to to work at the Albert Ellis Institute with Albert Ellis and um, worked with him for eight years and was fortunate enough for him to train me and to run groups with him. So that's my background in the cognitive work and then also did uh, very sort of traditional behavior therapies and sort of newer wave therapies now, like acceptance and commitment therapy and skills from dialectical behavior therapies and things like that. Okay, thank you. That's great. And as you mentioned, you've got a lot of training and specialization in cognitive behavioral therapy. Is it okay if I refer to it as CBT? Sure, sure. Okay, great. And could you maybe just give a brief breakdown, maybe an elevator pitch style breakdown of what CBT is for those people that aren't aware of, of the principles of CBT? 
Yeah, and there, there are differences on this, but largely CBT is an umbrella term used to understand a number of therapies. The two main forms are going to be cognitive therapies that really focus on how cognitions interplay with situations or triggers and emotions and then lead to behaviors. And so the emphasis, although there are other elements of the cognitive therapy, is to help people understand what their beliefs are, what they're thinking, and ways to think differently in order for them to sort of cultivate different feelings or modulate or change their feelings um, or accept those feelings so that they can behave in ways that are adaptive. So for instance, if someone you know says something disrespectful to them on the street, the belief might be that person shouldn't say that, they're a horrible person, I can't tolerate such a thing, that's just awful, and then I become enraged and angry, and the next thing you know, I'm yelling at the person and we're in a physical fist fight. The cognitive approach would be, let's help people understand in advance what kind of beliefs they have about the way others should behave, what kind of beliefs they have about what they're supposed to do, and to see if they can come up with more adaptive ways of thinking so that when they come into contact with the trigger, they don't become as emotionally an, an intense reaction that is sort of over the top that makes it more difficult for them to behave in a way that's going to be functional. We want them to behave more effectively towards their goals. Now, the other approach that can be considered cognitive or behavioral is accepting whatever shows up and not trying to change it. And then I still want to, the focus is still in CBT, the focus is on the behavioral outcome. So even if I don't change the emotional intensity of the anger, like maybe it's at a 90, and if I think differently, I get it down to a 50. That's one approach. Then I'm not as angry, and it's easier not to use profanity, not to yell, not to punch someone out. The other approach, though, is I can practice accepting and recognizing that I can just feel the 90 anger. I can just let it be there. I don't have to change it. I can, in fact, experience and hear in my head, the thinking, that person shouldn't have done this, it's so unjust, I, I really should punch him out. I can let that be there and accept that the thought's there, but I don't have to take its advice. So one approach is changing what I'm thinking, changing the feeling. The other approach is to sort of accept it. So that's the generally how we're looking at CBT from a very cognitive aspect. The other, there are behave, more behavioral tools people can use sometimes where we might actually practice exposure therapies, even in anger, but certainly in with regard to anxiety, where we just, over time, we allow people to experience the trigger, the stimulus, the thing that in fact brings on or precedes the emotional response. And we do it enough times where they sort of get used to it um, over time. And that's, that's one approach. Or we reinforce and teach people, hey, it's much better if someone, you know, curses you out, it's better for you to walk away. And we get them to practice that and they learn that actually that's reinforcing because they end up having a better day when they do that. Those are sort of more behave, te technically behavioral approaches. Okay, that's great. It's very interesting because already I'm starting to hear the echoes of Stoic philosophy and some of the things you said. And later on, maybe we can talk about that a bit more. I wanted to ask you, are you still working as part of the editorial board um, for the journal I think it's the Rational, Emotive, and Cognitive Behavior Therapy Journal. No, I haven't been asked to review anything there in years. Oh, okay. And are you still in touch with the with the research? Are you still quite 
research-based? Because I, you did say you have a, a science-based approach. So you, are you still quite hands-on with the research? So I, I work with a couple of research labs on um, some projects related to uh, a software company that I co-founded, My Best Practice. And so we're actually looking at how we can um, disseminate better practices through software to clinicians who are using scientifically based techniques to see if we can we can really open it up to where more people who typically can't afford it have access to clinicians who are providing evidence-based care. Okay. All right. That's such an awesome project because as you said, you know, it's these things, these solutions can sometimes be expensive. So if you can reach more people um, using software, that's a great idea. No, I mean, that's the, the heartbreaking thing is, that, you know, science is wonderful. With that said, in behavioral health and mental health, there are really many areas that we cannot effectively treat yet. The heartbreaking thing is there are some things we actually effectively treat very well. And it's just a matter of being able to get people trained in them, you know, to disseminate those technologies, those treatments to people, and then to provide them with the opportunity where they can do that with real clients in real time. And they're not under the pressure of cranking people through like a mill, or they can't remember because they haven't been trained in a while. And that's where my best practice software comes in is it sort of helps automate some of that and remind people, because there are so many people that could be helped if they just get put in touch with the right clinician. Um, That's, you know, I think where our society needs to to really work so we can really take care of everyone. Yeah, 100%. And just touching on that before I lose the train of thought, have you seen a very big change or a, a, an attitude shift, I guess, if you want to call it that, in how open people are to seeking mental health? Because if I look at, my, especially sort of the older generation, my dad's generation, there wasn't that kind of openness about speaking about having depression or anxiety. Do you see that in your own practice that more people are willing and, and coming forward and talking about it? it? It does seem in in the last couple of years, I mean you can you can look at the statistics on this. There has been an increase in people utilizing services and certainly in the US, but I think it's worldwide. I think uh, COVID and the telehealth sort of boom um, have facilitated that. I mean, one people were under more stress, and so there was you know higher higher levels of anxiety disorders and mood disorders like major depressive disorder. In addition, I think that telehealth, in a way, um, has probably allowed people or enabled people who may not have come in before to come in. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, they don't have to commute. Um, sometimes some, if there had been stigma, they might be embarrassed about showing up to an office where you know they're going to have to sit in a waiting room and it's going to be kind of clear what their issues are. Um, it's taken that away. Um, there are other challenges with telehealth, but I think to, to some degree, telehealth alone and COVID alone, but playing together probably have have increased people's um, willingness to come in. And I and I also think younger generations do seem to be uh, social media. This probably cuts both ways, uh, certainly in a negative way. It certainly seems clear people are sharing and acknowledging uh, mental health issues and behavioral health issues more publicly. Okay, makes sense. And I wonder, maybe is the balance of both here. Is it that there is more mental health or there are more mental health problems, so there are more people seeking help, and there's just people being more comfortable about it? Or do you think there's like an interplay of both there that 
there's an increase in mental disorders but there's or mental health problems and there's also an increase in the willingness to talk about them or do you think it, those problems have always been there and now people are just coming forward or is it hard yeah. to say I, I would imagine your conclusion is right that it that it is both i mean it does it does appear that w- with covid recently and and there's some evidence even that social media's uh, our reliance on especially with children and adolescents social media that there there may be some in, increased uh, symptomology. Um, at the same time, I think some of it is also a lot of this has always been there. I mean, we can see suicide rates in certain groups have gone up. So without question, I think in recent times, there has been an increase um, in mental health issues. And I think there are people who in the past experienced symptoms, but were unwilling to engage are now engaging. Right. So going back to your experiences and your work, we spoke a bit before I mentioned that I was very interested in the work that you've done around weight loss as well as as anger management. So maybe we can start off with with weight loss and the work that you've done there. And as I explained, just for the listeners that aren't aware, I've got a background in personal training. So, you know, weight loss is something that's often spoken about in that space, especially sustainable weight loss and not just that yo-yo dieting and putting weight on and dropping it off again. And I just thought it was fascinating that there's a there's obviously a mental aspect to dieting and, and losing weight as well. And so I just wanted to pick your brain on on what CBT has to offer for someone that's in like a weight loss or on a weight loss plan or weight loss program. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about the way I describe um, CBT, what we're really looking to do is to help people understand the elements of their sort of environment, what's going on. And certainly the food environment matters a lot. I mean, what what is in front of us food-wise uh, Certain, certainly influences our decisions. Also, our beliefs about ourselves, our beliefs about food and situations in the future matter. So we've got the situations, the environment, right? We've got our beliefs, our thinking, and we've got our feelings about everything. And then there's what we do, our behaviors. So from a weight loss perspective, you know, I, I work with a lot of clients on, on, on losing weight. And as you know, if you're in the field, getting clients to lose weight is actually usually fairly easy. I mean, I you know, my clients can lose weight very quickly. Now we don't want them to lose weight too quickly because there are there are problems with that. Um, but usually, getting the initial weight loss is not the challenge. The challenge is getting them to maintain that weight loss, and that's where e- even the best trained clinician and what all the scientific studies show us that is really the dilemma or the challenge is getting people not just a year later but five years to maintain that weight loss. Um, and that's a different story, and that's where a lot of the trends I think. Um, are sort of very, very misleading and get people to do all kinds of things that oftentimes are extreme and dangerous. So, um, I mean, where it comes in is, you know, it's largely about two things and it, many will argue it's, it's mostly eating, but the bottom line is it's about eating and it is about activity. Um, those are the two factors. And what uh, the folks at the Obesity Research Center, the weight loss program realized they had those covered and they actually initially brought me in because they realized they could tell ex- people exactly what to eat and how to eat. They could tell people exactly what to do from a physical activity or exercise perspective. Um, getting people to do those things over time is the challenge. And that's where cognitive behavior therapies, traditional behavior therapies, new wave therapies come in. And so that's when I came in and um, wrote the protocols around that. The person knows what to eat, but how do you get that person to make that choice when they're out at a restaurant? with their friends, when they've had a stressful day, when they're feeling anxious, 
when they're at a holiday gathering with their family and there's resentment and you know so it's really about what CBT is all about which is how do I make good decisions how do I behave in ways that are going to help me achieve my long-term goals right in the moment that are aligned with my values so I've got to first figure out what do I value what's important to me in the long run I've got to then set goals and then I have to figure out okay on a day-to-day basis, how do I make decisions? How do I behave in ways that are going to help me achieve those goals that are in line with my values time and time and time again? Not perfectly. It's not going to be a, you know, always a linear relationship. And that's the other piece. When I make mistakes, when I fall off the wagon, when I have a relapse or what we call, and you'll see in the weight loss literature, uh, even in the scientific literature, the Haagen-Dazs effect, when I, in fact, break, break, my nutritional plan, do I then just spiral out of control? Well, I already had three cookies. I might as well eat the whole container Um, or the what the hell effect. I've already messed up. So F it, I'll just have, you know, four more cocktails. What's the point? You know, I had the appetizer, the fries with cheese, melted cheese and chill. I might as well get the double hot fudge Sunday dessert too. So it's helping people be aware of those patterns, helping people understand the role their environment plays, their beliefs, their thinking plays, their feelings, their relationships. All of those things need to be well understood. And then we want to give them techniques and tools so they can behave better time and time again over time, not just for a short term, not just for the short term, so they can maintain that weight loss uh, for the long term. Those things that you, those points that you raised there makes me feel a little bit at ease because I did a science-based personal training course and all of those things that you spoke about were brought up in in the course that I did. So clearly it's still up to date with with what's going on. I just find it fascinating that people are, as you said, it's so easy to tell people what to do and what to eat, but they, they don't seem to be able to do it for sustainable periods of time. So is CBT essentially what it's trying to do is it trying to to change sort of motivation i want to go to gym i want to get a, a into good health i want to change the shape of my body and turn it more into like a discipline and a, a lifestyle change if i understand the first part of the question i mean so without well for instance so for the protocols i've written for anger management and also for for weight loss uh, motivational enhancement is certainly part of it um in the early stages at the same time in, with every client I work with, really we want to make all of these sort of the, the exercises they're doing, things they're doing so that they become patterns, they become the default. And so we, we're really moving them towards lifestyle. I mean, that's why, you know, frequently in the area, the idea of diet, even though it comes from the, the notion of, you know, way of life, people think about diets as like, this is what I'm going to do for a short period of time. As opposed to like, this is what I'm going to choose to eat. This is how I'm going to exercise indefinitely. And maybe it'll vary as I age. My joints will become different. I'll have to modify things. You know, maybe as my basal metabolic rate comes down as I'm, you know, a decade older, I'll probably have to even cut my calories a little or accept that I'm going to gain a little weight or something. But largely what we're talking about is not some short-term change, but helping people get the tools they need. So that one, I want to be not only effective in working with them, I want to be efficient. I want to help them become independent and not need me anymore. I want to give them the tools they can practice as a discipline to where it now becomes their way of life. You know, 
appetite. It is their way of life. It is their lifestyle. That's the only way we're going to get lasting change. We want to make them less reliant on us and more confident to have the self-efficacy that they can do these things. But that, as a behaviorist, means practice, 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 practice. And then generalizing that to the real world. They practice and then it works and then they get feedback from the world. It's reinforcing and then they continue. And that also keeps them motivated. The reason why I raised that is just I've found personally that motivation is a very fickle thing to rely on to sort of get any long-term thing um, achieved. So by incorporating habit change, disciplines and those things, those are far more reliable, as you said, you know, patterning and programming and changing the way that you think and and sort of interface with your environment is the only way to do it. It's just so fascinating that the psychological literature lines up exactly with the fitness science community-based stuff. So obviously they must be drawing on it, the psychology literature that's out there. And it's just amazing that those two things are interfacing. I didn't realize that the connection was so deep between what I've learned and, and what you're t- talking about. So it's, it's really interesting that it's the, world, the two worlds are kind of colliding without me even realizing it. Yeah. Well, the other thing is the, the, the learning principles just exist. And so whether someone's coming at it from uh, as a scientist or, you know, a practitioner of personal training or an attorney, whatever, they're all dealing with human beings. And the fact is the human beings operate by, by these <laughs> different laws or principles. And so, you know, they might be calling it something else, but if they're discovering what actually works, they're discovering the same things. We see it a lot in bodybuilding. The 80s bodybuilders were doing things that they obviously didn't know had scientific right. backing because there was no science at the time. Um, but a lot of what they were doing has been proven now as the research is, is coming out. And it's just obvious that it was going to be the case because otherwise they wouldn't have been the best bodybuilders of the era. They wouldn't have succeeded. You wouldn't have exactly. had... Uh, Dorian Yates or Arnold Schwarzenegger and yeah I I quote Arnold all the time yeah yeah so it's it's just it's nice to to see the science sort of corroborating what you're experiencing Um, but but I think you're right you know those principles exist regardless of the science because the principles seem to work across the board right all right so the other area of interest that I had and this is kind of where my love and passion of stoicism kind of meets your background in CBTs. The Stoics often talk about anger being the worst emotion because it's so destructive or can be so destructive to relationships, to not only between other people, but also the re- relationship you have with yourself. So I wonder if we can maybe talk about anger and anger management. And if you don't mind sharing not only th- theoretical aspects, but maybe one or two techniques that people could use to help them if they're dealing with a, a situation that makes them feel angry or upset. Sure. I mean, the first piece, I just uh, will sort of recapitulate or even give a few details. One, all emotions, in my view, and not, 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 a, not a unique view or one I created, is that all feelings, all emotions are, are valid, meaning they're they're sort of people talk about them sometimes people are like well it's is it true or is it rational i don't view a feeling as rational or true it's an experience and so you're having it you know if you're if you're hot you're hot <laughs> right if you have a temperature of 98 degrees fahrenheit or 101 degrees fahrenheit that's your temperature that's your level it's not right or wrong 
right? It's valid. With that said, though, there are frequently associated with certain intense emotional states ways of thinking, not always, but ways of thinking that may be causative, they may be correlated, who knows. Um, Where I'm going with this is there there are some schools of therapy that do not believe it is it is necessary or is even productive and can be counterproductive to try to change the feeling. The view is let's accept the feeling and not try to change it. I typically subscribe to, I subscribe to that many times. And I think there are also times when being able to modulate or change a feeling can be very adaptive and can be helpful and useful. Anger is one that is in in fact, um, the Stoics could have it right. It may be more, detrimental than others. I mean, my, my guess is, you know, all, all of these, if you look at the correlates, whether it's, um, you know, even, even sadness, anxiety, guilt, embarrassment, shame, all of these things are going to have detrimental effects, even physiologically, if they stay, if they're kind of are too intense for too long. Um, at the same time, trying to suppress them also causes problems and maybe worse problems. So what we know about anger, for instance, is Suppressing it is not a good idea. It's associated with all kinds of problems. Different styles of suppression can, um, you know, lead to heart problems, you know, cardiovascular risk for heart attacks and stroke. Um, can also, it's associated with a certain kind of pattern for cancer risk. But venting and overly expressing it also is correlated with cardiovascular risk. So you'll have some people, even clinicians in the field who claim to be experts, saying, you know, go out and yell or hit a pillow punch a punching bag. Um, and there's evidence that those things actually can can make the behavioral patterns worse and the physiological risk worse. So anger is something that is associated with all kinds of negative health outcomes, you know, medical risks. It's also predictive of all kinds of relationship problems, problems in the workplace. It's sort of a, it, really across the board, every domain of life. And so we want people to be able to accept anger at times, we, you know, the level, we want them to accept it. We want them to accept whatever anger they have always. And we want, I want them at times um, to be able to modulate, to be able to change it. Because if you're giving a speech or you're about to interact with someone and have some, you know, uh, negotiation, you don't want anger to be too intense. There's evidence that it leads people to, to take greater risks. It causes them to make math calculation errors so if you're in the world of finance, I work with a lot of people at hedge funds and things like that. Um, many times they come in and they sort of think this sort of like, quote unquote, ag- aggressive style, which people all also always kind of link aggression with anger, which is sometimes the case and not always the case, um, is good because it means I'm, I'm ambitious and it means I'm hard charging and I'm motivated and I'm productive. And what we know is when people are experiencing high levels of anger, they're actually more likely to take risks that are unnecessary and the calculations are poor. And so it is actually the probably one of the worst times to make a decision um, that involves that kind of uh, decision-making about hedging bets and risk and things like that. So first, yes, I think the Stoics had it right. Anger is definitely something to watch out for. Um, it's bad for, for our own physical bodies in terms of medical risk, bad for our relationships, can be bad for work across the board. You know, in terms of looking at anger is often, this is the thing, people come in for anger management. And and by the way, just cut me off if I'm going on too long. No problem. Keep keep going. There there are sort of two classes of people. I think one thing that is oftentimes misunderstood about those 
folks that I think people think, oh, that person's got an anger management problem, is I think they oftentimes think these are sort of uncaring people who are cold and cruel because of the things they say to others or do and things like that. My experience has been, for the most part, with the people who come into an anger management center um, or come in that I'm working with for anger management in the coaching world or psychotherapy, they're actually very, very sensitive. Um, and for the most part, most of the time, they feel very guilty and remorseful and have regret afterwards. That's just an experience that happens afterwards. It doesn't stop them in the first place. So we have one one group that really feels bad afterwards, and they may come in on their own. The other group, and there's obviously overlap, um, are coming in because it has caused such problems at school, in the workplace, for their team, for the, they've run into legal consequences. And so they've got a spouse that's going to divorce them if they don't fix it. They've got children that may not be talking to them anymore. They've got, you know, a boss or an employer that says, you need to go take care of this, or you're going to be on probation, or you're going to be out the door and we're going to fire you. Right. Or they've got a, you know, university or something saying, you know, you need to go take care of this or you're no longer going to be enrolled here. And so there's an external contingency or there's, you know, their attorney is saying, go take care of this before the judge gets involved because, Otherwise, uh, there are going to be legal implications. So you do have external contingencies, but you also have people that are really sensitive. And in both cases, what it usually comes down to are themes of justice, fairness, respect, safety. Um, and then there there are other factors like frustration and just tough situations um, that put people at risk for anger. And so anger is oftentimes discussed as a moral emotion. And you probably read this in the Stoics. It's about like, I think something is not right. I have to fix it. And that's where the anger comes in. So helping people really clarify what are their morals? What are their principles? What are their values? And how is anger interplaying with your thoughts and your behaviors? And are the behaviors that are coming out in line with your views of morality? Because frequently when the anger is incredibly intense even though it's about an injustice, the behaviors that come most naturally sometimes don't sort of f- further support justice. Sometimes they do. Sometimes I'm resolving. I mean, you think about in, in the United States, and I'm sure it's spread to other countries, mothers against drunk driving, you know, mad. Certainly anger is something, uh, I want to be clear, I'm not saying anger is bad. As I said, all emotions are valid. I think they evolve for a reason. And they usually have a very important, relevant, helpful characteristics. Anger lets us know, it alerts us, an injustice has been carried out and it motivates us. It gives us energy. I mean, it, it, in, you know, it, it changes our physiology. All of a sudden there's glycogen available and our pupils are dilated. We're scanning for threats and we're ready to take care of things. So it has adaptive qualities. When it lasts and becomes chronic, mm. right? And when I behave in ways in the moment when I'm incredibly angry that do not work in my long-term interests, that's when we want to give people skills and tools to do something a little different. Got you. I wanted to quickly ask you about something you mentioned there. You spoke about the physiological effect of anger. Do they know what causes the increased risks of heart attacks? And I think you said cancer as well. Do they know what the exact physiological change that anger is? Is it a hormonal change or what is actually happening that causes those negative health effects? Yeah, that that probably goes beyond my okay. my level of expertise, even to know whether they know the exact mechanisms. 
you know, I will say you can you can look the the sympathetic nervous system response to anger is very similar to that of fear. And a few studies, some by Axe, maybe in 1953, there are a number of number of studies that have been on this where it's very difficult physiologically to differentiate um, the fear response from an anger response. But so what we know in both cases, you know, you got your amygdala firing, sympathetic nervous system is going like crazy, and so you've got huge surges and increases in blood pressure and things like that for sure. So. I'm not a physician, um, a PhD in clinical psychology. So, you know, I've looked at these studies. My, my guess is there's something about that chronic activation uh, going on um, okay. that, that's related, but I, I would not claim to know the exact mechanisms. Okay. Is, is it a stress response as well? Is there cortisol released and all those kinds of things? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, stress response is kind of the, the general category. And then, you know, differentiating that would be, you know, the particular emotions that the person's experiencing. But so um, if you look at sort of the fight, flight or freeze response, that's going to be very similar when you're looking at anger and fear or anxiety. Okay, great. I'm not sure if you touched on it. Sorry if you did. I wanted to ask you the emotional response. Is there a theory on where that comes from? Like I was reading a book um, by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she basically said, you know, that emotions are a response to something that's happened in your in your past and that's you kind of reacting to the situation. And is that reaction controllable to a certain extent? Or is it always the case that sometimes emotions can come out of nowhere and there's no way for you to stop that from happening? I want to make sure I heard you quickly. One, sort of what are the causes of emotions, yes. right? And then the second is, are they always controllable? Yeah, is it is it possible to being so mindful that you're able to sort of step in and take control of your emotions in every situation, um, or not even that, not even so absolute as as every situation? In most situations, is it possible to be in the driving seat? Well, first we'll talk about the causes of emotions. I'm I'm actually not familiar with her her research. Certainly, in terms of what causes emotion, there are different theories on this. There's certainly lots of scientific support for different ones. I don't think anyone's going to question that there are you know genetic and epigenetic determinants that sort of set people up. Um, there's going to be all kinds of other bio biology that takes place across time. Um, even in, in the current situation, if someone has low blood sugar, that, you know, physiologically is going to influence the emotional state. So there's, there's biology involved. There's also, and this is depending on the construct she's referencing, certainly all of our experiences, whether it's when we're five years old or yesterday as adults, are going, our learning history certainly plays a role. And so, I mean, I do think there has been historically sometimes an over-reliance or an idea of the contribution that certain particular ages have. I definitely think early, early childhood is important and can, you know, set us up for how we understand the world to be, uh, without question. But that doesn't that doesn't stop either. And so, you know, whether you're 25 or 45, we're continuing to learn and change the way we think and view ourselves and the world and, and, and others. Um, Sorry, Ryan, to, to butt in there quickly. Is yeah. that, is that, is some of that to do with the fact that the way that we understand the brain and the plasticity of the brain has also changed? We used to think that, you know, that old saying, you can't teach a dog old tricks. That seems to kind of be very false. Yes, it's easier to to train younger people to do certain things, but as we grow older, we're still able to learn, still able to change. And is that playing into this sort of over-reliance in the younger experiences? Well, I mean, and, and to be clear, I, I do, I mean, I, I think 
I, well, I think you're right. One, um, there's greater neuroplasticity when we're younger, but of course we can still continue to learn. We're also practicing things. So when we're older, we've practiced for three decades, a way of thinking, a way of behaving when we're having certain feelings. So it, it is possibly going to be a lot more challenging to make those changes because just like a, an athlete has practiced and rehearsed a certain way of throwing a ball, easier to intervene when they've thrown it three times than when they've thrown it 30,000 times because their brain has learned this is the way to do it. So there's a dominant response. So, you know, can an old dog learn new tricks? Yes. Is it more challenging for a number of reasons? Yes. I, I think initially the reason there, again, and I'm not suggesting that people who think, who are, or who are spending a lot of time talking about a, a childhood experience, I'm not suggesting that's not relevant. As a behaviorist, I work in largely in the present and the here and now and try to bring very practical strategies that have scientific um, evidence to support them to the here and now about what the person is thinking now, what they're feeling now, how they're behaving now. To be clear, though, that does not mean that I don't think that the way they believe the world to operate wasn't initiated or first learned when they were five years old and the way their caregivers, their mother and father and friends and peers interact with them. I definitely think it's very important to do a careful assessment to understand how early early childhood experiences influenced what they're thinking and feeling and behaving and how they're relating to others now. I think sometimes there's been an over-reliance or focus on just continuing to talk about the child which, as I said, very relevant to understand and work can be done there. I just don't want to necessarily always assume all of the time should be spent there. want to understand what needs to be understood there, assessed, what needs to be possibly treated or addressed there, and what can I do in the here and now, in the present moment to help the person. And some, some of that can be done. Not, not without that. That's the context, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. As I understand it, CBT tends to focus more in the here and now. What can I do now rather than looking too far back in the past and trying to fix everything in your past? Is that right or am I misunderstanding that? Well, this is where I'm trying to strike the balance. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, think, I think, one, some, some folks in the CBT world, probably we could spend a little more time making sure we're carefully assessing the child childhood. But I think people sort of characterize it and, and assume Yes, CBT people typically are working in the here and now, in the present. That doesn't mean we want to ignore developmental history. At the same time, I think other folks are spending too much time just talking about it. Talking about it, depending on what the, the discussion is, could be helpful. I mean, they could be doing all kinds of work that is, is relevant for the here and now. Um, but that's, that's part of the issue. Yes, we want to work in the here and now, in the present, to help people that in the context of what uh, has happened historically. Great. Yeah, that makes sense. I see we, we're reaching the end of our time soon. So maybe before you go, I just wanted to ask you about maybe some relaxation techniques that, that someone could easily do and potentially also meditation does that play into cbt at all do you advise clients to take on the practice of meditation if you could if you could address those two points and then we can probably wrap up sure yeah so there there are really um four scientifically supported techniques for for anger management for example if, if that's what you're looking for the relaxation for um relaxation is one of them and relaxation 
is highly effective to address anger. It's highly address uh, highly effective uh, working with people who have anxiety issues. Um, and there can be times when a clinician might choose not to do that if they really want to move towards uh, getting getting people to, as I mentioned earlier, accept and experience something instead of being able to modulate it. But it does does modulate anger um, and anxiety quite well. And so in the moment for anger, relaxation is something people can do. What I suggest to most of my anger management clients is that we treat relaxation um, one, it's a state that can be achieved, but it's also, you know, a skill to develop that you want to practice so that you get really good at it. Because when people first start doing a breathing technique, for instance, some people can actually become activated and anxious. They certainly may not get a relaxation response easily, but just like any sport or anything else with time and practice and feedback, they can get better at getting the relaxation response more quickly. So I recommend that they practice it just like going to the gym daily when they aren't angry. But when they get up in the morning after breakfast, they spend five minutes and they practice this breathing technique. Now, there are a number of reasons I do that. One, it helps them learn to become good at relaxing themselves so that when they need it in a moment, they'll be better at it. The other thing, though, is they're getting a relaxation response so that they're actually more relaxed, which means there's their baseline is now they have greater bandwidth to handle a trigger coming in the door and they're less likely to do that. The third reason is we talked earlier about how when there's chronic activation in the nervous system, there's an area in the brain called the reticular activating system that sometimes if people are just constantly have their sympathetic nervous system activated, finally it just kind of like, let's just let's network, let's just let it keep going and let's stay chronically activated. And that's where you look at things like the immune system getting broken down over time and probably a number of mechanisms that are detrimental that play a role in the cardiovascular system and maybe even cancer and things like that that as i said earlier kind of go beyond i don't i don't have precise knowledge of how those mechanisms play out but this chronic activation is associated with all kinds of negative health outcomes what we do know though is that if you get people to turn off that system to tamp down the sympathetic firing for a few minutes, a couple times a day, it kind of keeps it off. So instead of it being on all the time, just having them twice a day turn it off can decrease the likelihood that it's going to be chronically activated. So we really have three reasons to have them do that. Then we want them in the moment, if it, if it makes sense. I mean, if they're at a podium, they may not be able to do what I'm going to suggest next, which is sort of paced respiration, because that would you know probably socially not go over so well. <laughs> If they're in the middle of a, of a play on the sports field, they may or may not be able to pull it off. So sometimes I have people, depending on the situation, go into a bathroom and do this. Sometimes it's not a problem at all because they're in their car. But the, the notion is do it when you can in the moment, but also be practicing it regularly so you're better at it, so that you turn off the chronic part and that your baseline uh, kind of comes down so you have more bandwidth, you're less likely to be triggered later. I do paced respiration. The, the one that's been studied the most is an inhale for a four count, holding for seven and exhaling for eight. With that said, most likely slowing down the breath cycle in general is going to be helpful. And in particular, getting the exhale to be longer than the inhale is usually something to be emphasized, which the four, seven, and eight count does very well because you're, you're doubling it. It doesn't have to be seconds. And what I tell clients is you want the count, that ratio, but you want it to be what works for you. You don't want to be like ready to pass out or hyperventilate because you've been holding the seven for too long. So make the seven where you're holding, 
what's workable. So they're inhaling for four, holding for seven, exhaling for eight. The modification I, I make is I call it pursed paced respiration because it seems to help people is when they're exhaling, I have them purse their lips as if they're blowing out like through a, a beverage straw, which really automatically forces the exhale to be incredibly slow. So inhale for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. I think there's actually even a, a worksheet that gives a little bit of education around this on the website. I'll, I'll try to provide you with a link and people can just grab that and read about it. And, you know, it kind of explains things where it might actually motivate them a little bit to do it. I actually did this as an experiment. I came across one of your YouTube videos when I was looking into techniques of breathing and things like that for anger. And I did it. I've got a a fitness tracker that obviously monitors my heart rate. And my heart rate came down so much after I think three or four, just three or four rounds of it. And I was, it blew my mind. I was, I felt a bit odd because I'd I'd calmed down so much that it almost felt, I was like unnaturally calm. So it's maybe something you have to get used to, that feeling of calmness. I tell people to practice. That's why I have them check their heart rate before and after, because again, it's reinforcing when people say this actually works. And I also tell them, don't do it while you're driving or operating heavy machinery. I mean, and they think that's funny, but you, some people get lightheaded. You want to be careful. It's highly effective. It is not necessarily as interesting to me as an executive coach or clinician as talking about someone's childhood and how those early schemas are influencing their decision-making when they're managing a portfolio. So a lot of practitioners don't teach it because it's just not that fun and interesting to say, all right, here's what we're going to do next. Inhale for four. Hold for seven, exhale for eight, but it is highly effective. So I definitely encourage people to do it. I wasn't expecting it to happen so quickly. It's incredible. And I, I do urge people who haven't tried it, if you have, especially if you have one of those fitness trackers that, that monitors heart rate and you can actually see it happening in front of you, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Sorry, Dr. Philip or Ryan, before you go, the last thing I wanted to touch on, I asked about meditation. Is that something that, that is part of the CBD practice as well? So um, there are a number of what sometimes are called third wave, the third wave of, of cognitive behavior therapy that are mindfulness based. So we um, actually, my, my much better half, her, her original research was on uh, mindfulness based cognitive therapy for angry men who are married. And so what we do know is that, so one thing I differentiate meditation from relaxation because that's not the goal of meditation. People may not at all ever or certainly frequently um, become relaxed. Some people do become very relaxed when they meditate, but that's not the reason to do it. I recommend meditation practice to almost all clients. With that said, there there are some counterindications if someone's had a number of depressive episodes, and I'm not giving anyone advice or medical guidance here. They should speak to a, a professional. But there is some evidence that, that actually meditation or can exacerbate depressive symptoms for people who have had numerous depressive episodes. So, Sorry to butt in, but in, Ron. I actually saw a tragic story linked to that. Uh, someone went, I think it was a girl, went to one of these long-form retreats with extended meditation practices. And I think she ended up committing suicide as a result because it actually exacerbated, exactly what you're saying, it exacerbated her, her anxiety and depression because I think she wasn't well-versed in meditation either. So I think she went into quite an extreme form of it and then being alone with herself and forced in, into sort of thinking in her mind obviously must couldn't have been great for her experience. So very, yeah, very tragic. Just wanted to really emphasize your point with that. So it's not for everyone. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm not familiar, familiar with that and I certainly don't know the cause. It sounds you know, certainly very, very tragic. 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there, again, I'm a very big, I'm an advocate of utilizing mindfulness techniques in general and meditation. And as I said, I, I do recommend it to almost all, all, all of my clients, except when it might be counterindicated. I also think people, there's a tendency to sort of, again, it's been trending now for years. It's not, it's not new. It's obviously been around for eons and I, and I think it's incredibly helpful and I've seen many clients benefit greatly. And I think some people think with other things, this is going to cure everything a hundred percent all the way. I don't view that. I don't, I don't think that's the case, but there is evidence that, you know, there are a couple of therapies that I you know largely practice that incorporate mindfulness in general. Some people are not going to be able to do 20 minutes twice a day for trans TM, uh, transcendental meditation. Some people aren't going to sit for an hour or do a silent retreat for 11 days for 11 hours a day. But there are other mindfulness exercises that are that are sort of shorter and quicker and for some people easier to pull off. But it can be incredibly helpful. It helps us be able to change our levels of attentional control and to be able to open up and experience thoughts, feelings, and sensations. So there's lots of scientific evidence that mindfulness practices can be incorporated with CBT or done on their own and can help people you know, who are experiencing chronic pain, doesn't decrease the pain necessarily, but it helps them bring down other associated symptoms, increases their, you know, ability to, to be mobile and be productive, can help with depressive symptoms, can help with anxiety symptoms. And we want to be careful that it's, you know, if someone has a diagnosable mental health disorder, that they're, they're taking guidance from, you know, a qualified professional that they're seeing. It's interesting and, and obviously only anecdotal, but my wife says to me, the moment i'm very i'm very good with my meditation i do at least once a day for 15 to 20 minutes but there were periods when i went off for months at a time and then came back to it and then let it go and she would she said she often noticed that my anger levels increased when i wasn't meditating and i would snap over small much smaller things and i would i, I wasn't even aware of it that i was doing it and then as soon as i start getting into my meditation practice again I'm much more attentive to where my thoughts are going and, and able to kind of refocus it. So exactly what you said. So it's very interesting that my experience is lining up with what you say. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the hope is that, you know, that kind of an exercise is something that, that helps people behave better. And as you said, you, you probably were experiencing your feelings differently. Like you might've been experiencing the same feeling differently or the feeling might've been different. And then regardless what she's sort of as a witness testifying, <laughs> your, your overt behavior was also different. Well, good, good for you for when you do it and good for her. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think the interesting thing is I don't think anything in the environment is changing. I think it's how I'm interfacing with what, whatever's in front of me. And I think what's even more incredible to me is when I'm meditating, it does not feel as if anything super beneficial is going on. But as soon as I stop it, there seems to be something monumental that shifts. In it's it's so subtle when it's happening, but as soon as it changes, it it just it's huge. Well, this is why I do think that what you just said sort of su supports my view and supports what I do with clients, which is meditation is one of those practices, just like getting people to exercise regularly or make those good food choices regularly over time. Meditation is one of the hardest sell. First of all, lots of people are really motivated and pumped right up front because it's, oh yeah, mindfulness, meditate. It's, it's a buzzword now. Um, with that said, it's called sitting or practice for a reason. Like it's, it, I mean, like sitting sounds very comfortable. And nice practice is more probably accurate the way people experience it. And like, 
people are good for like a week or two. What I explained to people is what you said is you have to almost adapt, sort of like view this approach it as like an, an agricultural pursuit. And I tell them, I'm like, this is not like relaxation. You do that breathing, you're going to feel relaxed in about three seconds. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like in two minutes, you will feel differently. Now with meditation, you're actually probably going to not only not feel better, you might actually be like uncomfortable. In fact, my guess is you're likely going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be sitting with thoughts, feelings, and sensations you've been trying to ignore. And we're going to say, don't push them away. Don't try to make them less intense or less painful. We're going to say, no, 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 no. Just touch those things. Get up close and personal with all that uncomfortable material. That's a tougher sell. Like you're coming in, you're seeing me, you're paying me, and I'm saying, now just go do that really uncomfortable thing. But don't just do it once. Do it every day, at least once, maybe twice, right? And you're going to get benefit, but not now. That's what I have to explain to them. I said, I want you to think about it like agriculture. You're going to like clear the weeds out. You're going to like till the soil. You're going to like plant it. Then you're going to wait for it to rain. You're going to wait for an entire like months and months to pass before you actually get anything to grow. So can there be significant benefits? Yes, lots of evidence for that. I, science supports it. I've seen it with executive coaching clients. I've seen it with health coaching clients. I've seen it with psychotherapy clients. And though it is usually not for a while. So I tell them when they're signing on, listen, do not expect next week to feel better. Do not expect right after the session for it to feel good. This is going to be uncomfortable for a long time. And if you do it long enough, I'm actually highly confident you're probably going to get that yeah. benefit. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I think that's about our time for the day. I had such a such a fascinating time with you. I think I learned a heck of a lot. And as someone who doesn't know a lot about CBT and is kind of getting an interest in it now and really starting to study it. I really, really appreciate you giving up your time and sharing what you know with, with the community that I have. No, happy to do it. I, I learned a lot too thinking about it and uh, listening to your what you shared and uh, hope it was helpful to them and it wasn't too 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 surface or, or went on too long. No, that was great. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm sure they will as well. Um, is there any way I can direct them to see more of your work or to follow what you do? I'm uh, sure they can go to my my first name. My parents did this to me. Um, is the letter J? So they can just go to jryanfuller.com. So j r y a n f u l l e r dot com, or they can do a Google search for New York Behavioral Health okay. or New York Behavioral Health dot com. Okay, great. Thank you so uh, much. I think I'm also probably on Instagram. I I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. As we come to the end of this episode of Speaking to Stacey, I want to say a big thanks for listening all the way through. I hope that you have found some valuable insights from my conversation with Dr. Fuller. Before you go, I have a couple of favors to ask. Please remember to subscribe to Speaking to Stacey. That way you'll never miss new episodes. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show. Remember, the more the show grows, the easier it is for me to continue to bring you beneficial content. In next week's show, I sit down with William Esau. We talk about his time as Simba in the theatre production of The Lion King and his journey through the ups and downs of life. I hope you enjoyed the show today and I look forward to sharing this experience with you again next week. Until then, keep well.